The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, it is an honor and pleasure to welcome Dr. Jahi Chappelle. He is the Director of Agroecology and Agriculture Policy at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. He has a very interesting background. He holds a Ph.D. in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology and a Bachelor of Science in Chemical Engineering, both from the University of Michigan. But his research involves political agroecology, conservation biology, political economy and ecology, and science and technology. He has worked globally trying to understand the stakes and opportunities within our contemporary food system. So welcome, Dr. Chappelle, and I'm really grateful to have you here because, in particular, you are a co-author of a report that I'm very interested in titled Deepening Food Democracy, the tools to create a sustainable, food-secure, and food-sovereign future are already here. Deep democratic approaches can show us how. Welcome. Thank you, Melinda. Well, tell me something. Before we get started talking about your work at the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy and diving deep into this great report on food democracy, I want to know how you found your line of work. Yeah, that's the story that I, I can probably spend the whole show weaving the tale. I guess the long and the short of it is I came at this actually with a bit of an uh, environmentalist lens. I really wanted to think of how can we conserve biodiversity that's very much threatened in the world. You know, we're, we're witnessing rate of extinction that's probably similar to what we saw when the dinosaurs were wiped off the face of the earth in a very short period. So humankind right now is having an impact on the earth that's similar to an asteroid impact. And so I started with wanting to figure out how to address that and save wild nature, but I don't know if it's because my parents are social workers or something else in me, but I never wanted to do that despite people or without people. I've never thought of nature as just being where people aren't. I really wanted to think of how we can be in balance with and how can we both have biodiversity and well-being for humans. And as someone who came relatively naively to it, it comes as a shock then that you see there's more than enough calories in the world to feed everyone, especially if you think about the 30% of food that's wasted. But we still have 800 million to a billion people who are hungry, plus another billion who don't have all the micronutrients they need. Yeah. And you know, people say, like, oh, that's like solving world hunger. It's one of those things that's a saying because it's thought to be so impossible. And it just was, for me, so shocking to find out, actually, in terms of just sheer quantities, we're there. We're past there. Mm-hmm. So coming from an environmental point of view and seeing this most elementary of human rights, the right to adequate food, just not being honored and being lacking, I really wanted to think of how we could put these together. How can we think of examples where people were being sustained and nourished and had control of their food systems, and we were seeing something that was good for biodiversity. So uh, my mentor at University of Michigan when I did my Ph.D., John Vandermeer, he and his wife, Perfecto, for years have done work in this general area, looking at small farmers and their effect on the environment and how sustainable agriculture can support biodiversity. And I was looking at their work, but I wanted to take it a step further and think about well, okay, well, how do we get political change 
what creates it and maintains it in positive directions towards providing rights for humans and providing biodiversity conservation. So by hook and by crook, I found my way to the example of Belo Horizonte, a city in southeast Brazil that was linked to local farmers. So they brought them directly into the city to sell to residents. And they also had, related to that, implemented a whole suite of food security programs that seemed very successful. So now we're getting a bit into the nitty-gritty, but that was how I came to my specific research on that one example of a, a case where a huge change for food security was made and people's nourishment in that city vastly improved. At the same time, they connected them to the local landscape, which is a, a rainforest around the city, a fragmented rainforest, and the farmers are right there having effects on the biodiversity in that rainforest. So that really intimate connection illustrates how it is around the world. That's a very visceral connection because it's right outside the city that we have a uh, world biodiversity hotspot. But all of us are connected in various ways, especially through our food to the environment. So that's just been the way I've thought about this. And over the years, especially with the right to food being so not provided and not fostered enough, that's really become a big focus of my work. And farmers often are the ones who suffer most. And so farmers' rights and farmers' sustainability has just been a huge part of that. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting, and I just want to springboard on, in so many directions. But the first, probably, and most important question is: How did that city in Brazil make those changes? How did they get people to get behind actions to solve the food security problems? I love telling this story. It's a great story. Francis Morlapay has, has written about it several times as well. But the short version of it is that they basically had about 25 years of building activism really coming out of the fact that Brazil had a dictatorship into the mid-80s. People got very organized, not only towards the end of the dictatorship to, to get the military out of power, but also the president after the dictatorship. There was corruption, and, and people were very upset about that. And so you had over 100,000 city-level councils in a city of around 100 million people, so you know a really large number of organizations that were organizing around impeachment. And that president did leave office, but following that, people were still pretty motivated and active. And there was a movement called the People's Movement Against Hunger and Misery and For Life, which is a, you know, trips off the tongue, which Herbert de Souza, a um, Brazilian sociologist, was associated with being at the, the head of that, but uh, really about getting people together and keeping this momentum to make fundamental change. Uh, the Workers' Party, which is in power now in Brazil, had started really working with the people you know, during the dictatorship and after. And you had this great linkage between scholars and the people on the ground and activists and people, just everyday people, laborers and workers. And they developed an agenda for a lot of social programs. And basically, while the PT, the, the Workers' Party, was not the majority party for a long time, each year they had a, a shadow government. And they developed their own agenda and their own versions of the laws that they would want to pass. And when they came into power into a, a bunch of states and cities in uh, 1993, they started implementing the programs that they've been talking about with civil society for years. And Belo Horizonte was one of them, Patrus Ananias de Souza, who was the mayor who started it. He was very committed to food. He says that the most important right, the right above all others, is the right to food so that you can live and the right to life. In practice, he's a lawyer. He says, in practice, of course, the most defended right is the right to property. Hmm. And so he really wanted to turn that around and based on just these years of activation and years of work, they both had, I think, the social imagination and the legitimacy and the plans and the ideas to address food insecurity head-on. 
and I had realized it has a lot to do with political rights and with access and not just with producing more. Yeah, that's a fabulous story. And I'm wondering how we could take some of those actions and bring them to the United States to change the lens through which we see the right to food. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot already happening, and in many ways it fits into my overall model of how these things work. So I was a professor for a couple of years. I still, probably pretty obvious already, still uh, laps into that very easily. But the way I, I like to look at policy change and political change is based on what was called the Three Streams Model by a political scientist named John Kingman. And he argues that there's policy solutions, you know, ideas on how do we solve problems out there that academics and activists and uh, people who work in government agencies are researching and thinking of all the time. And there's public will around what the most important problems that the public wants people to address are. And then there's the electoral politics, what politicians think will get them elected. And these three things actually are far more independent than we would usually guess. But the more each one is focused on a particular area, the more likely they'll all come together. And the more people who are activated and thinking about it and talking about it, the more likely something called a policy entrepreneur, someone or, or some group of people who have connections or new ideas or, or something new to offer when those things come together, they're able to pull it all together and use their political capital or, or the attention that they have and really get some changes happening fundamentally. And so that's pretty grandiose, but I think that what this boils down to is the more we think about and propose solutions, and I think you know, really concrete, but also can be really far out solutions, you know, propose ideas that we think might work or ideas that come from Brazil, a very different context. But start getting those in the conversation, the more likely when the time comes that we do have the opportunity when the politics turns right and the people's attention is on it, that we'll have those solutions that will be able to be implemented. So seeing so many things like food policy councils, like the U.S. Food Sovereign Alliance that my organization is part of, the National Family Farm Coalition, there's a lot of people who are doing this work and are proposing these solutions. And I think that that means we're getting towards a time when it's really ripe for the change that we saw in Brazil to happen. That took decades, but I think we've actually, since Francis Morlapea or Rachel Carson, you know, we've got some of that momentum and that time in that we're getting really close. Mm -hmm. It seems like in order to really get this movement going, we need more civic engagement. And I think in order to get there, people need to have their basic needs met. Or maybe it's the fact that they don't have their basic needs met that creates that angst that leads them into the movement. But I struggle with how to get people engaged in caring about something that is so basic as the right to healthy food so that we can all reach our greatest potential. Absolutely. Well, I think there's two complementary parts to that. One thing I think is we just need a lot more social connections. Robert Putnam, the political scientist who's famous for his book, Bowling Alone, yes. uh, the idea that more and more of us are doing activities like bowling, but we're doing them together less often and with people who are different than us less often. So I often say when people say, well, you know, what can I do? You know, there's going to be a community group around that's involved in something you care about. And if there isn't, you, you can start one. But there probably already is one if you care about food or educational quality. Get involved in one of those organizations because that by itself, now you're starting to build ties that we don't, a lot of us at least, I think, don't have in our day-to-day -day anymore where we you know, are part of the PTA or the bowling league or you know, maybe our, our church discussions. But... You know, get involved in your community so you can start to have the links to have that idea of civic engagement. And if you already are doing that, then that's when the really exciting part comes, because I think we need our connections between different groups more often. 
majority in that then connects to you know a group for labor rights, connects to the environmental group or the school, and start making connections between them because we share so much of our the mission and vision. When you really talk to people, I think we all want our communities to do well. And so, to me, those those bridging links between different kinds of organizations is something that we had before during the populist era, I think, and that we can have again. And that's what really allows you to start mobilizing a whole different scale. Mm-hmm. There are many forces working against us, I think. And I'm thinking of my own community just as an example. How is it that communities will welcome corporations to come in and maybe set up a business, it could be a food business or something else, and give that business maybe a tax incentive to be in that community and exploit that community, maybe not pay the workers a living wage so that they can't afford a healthy diet or that their children are not prepared to go to school. Maybe they will harm the environment in doing their business practices. You know, how is it that we are so vulnerable to these messages? I, I can only call them propaganda that, that you know we're faced with. That has us really acting against our own best interests. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right about the propaganda, and I think that's a big part of the problem. Is that we've known for a long time. It's just basic human psychology. We start to believe something the more we hear it. Yeah. And we might all think that we're smarter than that, but you know, we're not all sitting there evaluating every single element of our life with this clinical eye. So there's so many things that we end up just hearing again and again and start to accept. And I think one of those is that only, you know, business and large-scale private enterprise can help us. It's the only way to keep society going forward. And that the average person, you know, the way they can affect something maybe is only through what they buy. Yeah. And that we don't have the civic imagination to say, well, maybe we can restructure the way our government works. You know, I think that we need to do some really fundamental restructuring, but even just something more small-scale in terms of jobs around your local community and how you might do that or how you might support local businesses instead of tax breaks to a big new company. But, you know, I think the United States were very starved for both local resources and the power to use them. And this, to me, is the, the core and the other element. I said there are two things earlier, is that I think people get engaged and stay engaged when you can see some kind of real effect. It doesn't necessarily have to be large. I think people actually are not inherently selfish, so it doesn't even have to be something for yourself. But you have to be able to see that something is happening. I think it's why Community Gardens has been growing so much. Because if you get involved with that, you have a very tangible thing that you've helped develop and, and bring. But I think even beyond that, and one of the things that we talk about in our report, there's a lot of interesting things around the world that are being developed. One of them is participatory budgeting. And that's where some portion of a budget in the original case in Brazil, in a city named Porto Alegre, it was 2% of the city budget, is decided by the people. And the process that this happens by is that neighborhoods organize, and they talk about the priority for their neighborhood. They elect a representative from that group that shows up, and it's open to anyone, the meeting in the neighborhoods. Elect a group from, set of people from that one to represent them at the city level, and that elected group then makes final decisions on what the priorities between all the different neighborhoods are. What's the top priority of this this people's budget? And it goes to the mayor, and the mayor can say yes or no, but can't change the content. And you saw some really huge improvements in public works and especially the the quality of uh, infrastructure for poor neighborhoods. And you might ask, well, how is that different than just the elections we have now? And I think there's a lot of ways it's different, but the most obvious one 
that to me shows that there's a real kernel here we need to build on, is that when you look at the numbers for who was in those the, the final council that made the decisions, 35% of them were low-income residents of the city. 34% were women, which is not enough, not representative, but it's far more than most elected bodies that you see in the world right now. And I think around 20% didn't have a high school education. And so you had the real voices of the community there in a way that we don't see, you know, who in our current city bodies or community bodies or certainly our Congress has the background of being a person in the community who's struggling. Right. And so these processes, when done well, you can do them wrong, but there's lots of examples of doing them well as well. They really give you power and you're able to see something happen that you contribute to this process and then money gets spent in your neighborhood. And that's the key part I think we're missing too often is that we can have a great community organization, but then we're struggling for money from foundations or from government grant programs. But almost no matter how many people you got organized in your community, you can't directly get something done. You have to then go through a whole separate parallel process of electoral politics where there's a whole other set of compromises. And we're not going to completely change electoral politics, that's at least not in the short term, but I think starting these things where we're training people and giving people the power to make new decisions with each other, that's, I think, where the, the real promise lies in reinvigorating civic feeling because without the power to get something done, people aren't going to stay around. Right. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Jahi Chappelle. He's the Director of Agroecology and Agriculture Policy at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, and he is the co-author of a great report titled Deepening Food Democracy. The tools to create a sustainable, food-secure, and food-sovereign future are already here. Deep democratic approaches can show us how. Well, let's jump into this report and let's specifically get into food democracy. Sure. Let's define food democracy. You know, there's lots of different ways one could define it. I think in many ways it's what I was just talking about, that a community has the power to actually think about and determine what they want their food system, in this case, specifically to be through involvement by the community. The definition we give in the report is working to improve food systems for all, not the few, based on community's participation in democratic decisions about the food system. So what that means broken down is just having a way where we can, if we want to decide, if we get together farmers and restaurant workers and farm laborers and consumers, and we decide that we want to have certain kind of standards locally, that we can do that, and that we have the power to get that implemented. And maybe that's through current electoral politics, but changing it so that that actually, it actually happens and the vision enacted by the people happens, or some alternative methods like participatory budgeting. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you're as concerned as I am with the vertical integration of our food system. And I think because you're based in Minneapolis, you know, we're both based in the Midwest, and I think probably most rural communities see this. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of choice, or it seems like our choices are being limited, especially in poor rural communities where maybe you want something different, but it's just not available to you. So starting at the grassroots, at the bottom, to change and make a better food system, a healthier one that isn't so dominated by the corporate food models. Any ideas on, or have you witnessed, or do you have examples of how we can get ourselves out of the mess we're in? That's a, a pretty tall order. Again, I, I would go back to uh, Brazil to some extent, where I did my research for a long time. And not only does the city of Belo Horizonte have the innovative programs, but 
in 2002 or so, they started scaling them up to the federal level, to the zero hunger programs in Brazil, which some have said are, are the cause of the greatest reduction in poverty severity of, of modern times. Brazil has really made great strides. A lot of room to still improve, but it's made great strides with, with zero hunger. So, I mean, the example of, of zero hunger is, is really inspiring one. It's a lot of different programs at once, including support for family farmers, defined in Brazil as farmers below a certain size and using primarily family labor, at the same time as support for school lunches and the school lunches buying from local farmers where possible, direct support for small farmers that are struggling and buying from them to distribute to school programs. Mm-hmm. And uh, the right to food is instilled in the Brazilian constitution now. So they made a lot of strides. Now, exactly how we bring that here, this to me goes back to those those examples I was talking about and those possibilities. One specific example from the United States and from the Midwest, IATP has been convening rural climate dialogues. We had one in Morris, Minnesota, and we're organizing another one to come, uh, I think, later this fall. And this is based on the citizens' jury process from the Jefferson Center in uh, Minneapolis as well. And the schema for the citizens' jury is getting 15 people from the local community that are representative of all the different sort of constituencies and, and diversity and ethnicities that you have there as much as possible. And they spend three days talking about an issue, in our case, talking about and Morris, how could Morris respond to the coming and existing problems from climate change? Uh, you had experts present, you had community members uh, really deliberating, and really great facilitation from Jefferson Center to get people to talk about not how to convince each other of what they already thought, but how to express what they thought and exchange ideas. And they came up with a, a climate plan for Morris on how to create green jobs, how to support a sustainable infrastructure, how to support... Uh, the people who are already there, and they drafted that document. We're working with another community to make another one, and we're hoping to keep building on that and create the kind of agenda and document that can't be ignored by the current political system because the community has already given its input. It comes from the community, and so it's really hard to ignore the community when they're when they're united. And I think too often we're discouraged from being united. We're told just buy the right thing. Right. And I think you make a very good point in this report where you say the point is that democracy is not just something we have to accept as voting every couple of years. It's interacting with and making decisions with our fellow citizens that is the secret to making this work. And, of course, this report has those examples, including the Morris, Minnesota one. Is there anything else that you want to pull from this document about creating a more democratic food system that? I guess I'm asking for some action steps for people, but some concrete examples that we can take from this report so that we can leave running with some fresh ideas. Absolutely. Uh, so I gave a couple of talks here in Michigan. I'm, I'm like visiting a family and going to some conferences. And at the University of Michigan yesterday, I gave a talk. And afterwards, some people came to me and said, well, we think we're going we're gonna to get the university to do a 1% of the budget as participatory budgeting and have you know, faculty and students and staff uh, all come together. And I think you're trying to find opportunities like that in your school. It doesn't have to be a university. I think this could be a great learning experience for kids. In your school, in your, your local community, in your community organization, I think that trying to introduce these new processes and, and reading up on them. There's lots of information. There's the Participatory Budgeting Project, which uh, has really brought a lot of learnings from Brazil to the United States. There's also citizens' juries out there, like I said, from, from uh, Jefferson Center, and trying to 
trying these things out. And I think especially, this is the other, I would say the main thing to do, especially trying to do this across normal borders. There's a great group called the Real Food Challenge, and I had talked with them before, and a lot of students were organizing to get university meal systems to be better. And I said, well, this is, this is great, but to some extent, I think that they could go even further by reaching out to the cooking staff at the university and making sure that what they're doing actually contributes to or incorporates elements that the kitchen staff need and the other serving staff. Reach out to the farmers and the farm laborers and the businesses. Start making these links across our normal groups. And I think that's the real thing. If you're in a group, you know, really reach out to someone who's in a different part of it because all of us are struggling from people in, in urban areas or country areas often trying to get access to good food, farm laborers, immigrant workers. It's challenging work. That's, I think, where the real excitement lies in making those new ties. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the powerful things about this report is that it gives us examples of how this democratic process can work and really change our society. And I know that we as a a nation, really as a a planet, we are looking at these global trade policies that, in my opinion, seem to be threatening food democracy. Do you you want to make any comments about those and how we might stop some of these global corporate takeovers is the way I see them? I I really think, you know, forming these strong community ties is, is part of the key I like to say, I'm the first, far from the first person to say it, but I like to say, you know, a thousand voices united is so much more powerful than a thousand different voices, even if they're yelling the same thing. Right. You know, if they're all together in unison, that's much different than everyone using their own word or having their own concern, a thousand different voices in different directions. So really making these links, I think, is key. And the exciting thing is, internationally, there are a lot of groups that have already made some of these links and, and are, are growing and building. So... The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization has the Committee on World Food Security. And within that, there's a civil society mechanism where 12 constituencies are represented. They have urban poor, fisher folk, small farmers, and nine other constituencies as well from civic organizations. And so you're having people's voice directly in that conversation. You see uh, La Via Capacina, the International Small Farmers Movement or Family Farmers Movement, in I think 79 countries tons of different languages, and they've just moved their headquarters for the third time because they want to make sure each region that they work with has a sense of ownership and, and is up close and personal with the organization. So they were in Latin America, they were in Indonesia, and now they're in Zimbabwe. So learning about and linking up with these international movements can also be really exciting. And I think we're seeing it going on over all over the world. Within the United States, Libya Campesina does have affiliates, uh, the National Family Farm Coalition, Family Farm Defenders, and Rural Coalition. There's the U.S. Food Sovereignty Alliance. There's so many groups out there. So I think learning about these groups and seeing that you're not alone. You're far from being alone. And that's what the report was about, showing that there's examples of things that are working in better ways and people who have ideas for it to work even better. And so reading about those, learning about those, and when we can, joining them, it's just, I think, a really exciting time and exciting opportunity. Well, I want to thank you so much for being my guest. We've been speaking with Dr. Jahi Chappelle, Director of Agroecology and Agriculture Policy at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. And I also want to direct our listeners to the website where they can read your excellent report, Deepening Food Democracy. And you also have a Think Forward blog with some excellent topics. I was especially interested in inventing new food democracies, so there's lots of food for thought there. In closing, I want to thank our 
our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank you, Dr. Chappelle, for carving out time in your busy schedule to speak with us today. Oh, my pleasure, Belinda. Thank you.